Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. And Father, we humbly pause and just ask, help us now to continue to worship to continue to just surrender our hearts to you as a way of expressing worship to you by we just giving our attention now to your word. We thank you that you've given us the word of God, that your spirit has inspired it and that it is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness so we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Lord, let your word and every intent behind why you recorded and gave us this portion of it have its way in our hearts this morning. Prepare us in a way that only you can, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. And we ask that your Spirit would be our teacher and our instructor this morning. Bless your word as we study it. We ask together in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. 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 You may be seated. You know, I am not quite the social media person myself, but I have three daughters in high school and college, so because of that I've become somewhat more familiar with aspects of social media. And one thing that's clear about social media, it seems, is that you have to sort of learn the skill of being able to say what you want to say or need to say, whether it's in an Instagram post or Twitter or Snapchats, and sort of a limited amount of words. In fact, before we came up, remember, with smartphones, I remember remember when texting first started specifically that there was a limited number of words that you could even fit into a text and so you kind of had to find out how to say what you needed to say in a limited amount of words and communicate that clearly with a few words well Jesus who is certainly the master communicator speaking in these verses here in John chapter 3 probably about the most important subject of all demonstrates his ability in this very passage we're going to look at together to say so much and I emphasize the word so much rather in a very few words in fact in a few statements verse 16 through verse 21 there is packed spiritual truth and eternal lessons that are so vital and i pray that by the grace of god he can give us the ability to absorb all of what jesus was saying and communicating in this particular portion of scripture remember as we come to this spot now in john 3 we sort of left off right in the middle of a conversation jesus is having a conversation with this man nicodemus who is a very religious man. This man, Nicodemus, we saw last time, he knows a vast amount of spiritual information. So intellectually and information, this man knows a lot about the Bible. He knew a lot about the Word of God. He knew a lot of facts and information about
about God himself. He was a man who faithfully observed religious routines and rituals. He attended the synagogue worship services. He knew what to say and when to say it. He knew how to follow the rituals and he was devoted to spiritual practices. Yet it seems, though he had all that, that he sensed still that something was missing inside of himself. And he couldn't even quite put his finger on it. He knew that he was a devoted man to the things of God, but yet something inside him seemed to have him searching still. And Jesus, sensing his spiritual need as he comes to Jesus at night now for this private conversation between the two of them, Jesus seeing this and realizing that Nicodemus had a lot of religious practice in his lifestyle, but he didn't have a personal relationship yet with God in a real and genuine way, spoke to Nicodemus, we saw, about this need to have a spiritual birth. He said, Nicodemus, I tell you, you must be born again. That's what you're missing. Nicodemus, you need to have an experience spiritually with God that in the same way a person is born physically, that they begin physical life and they experience physical life, He said, Nicodemus, in the same way, you need to have a spiritual birth to begin a spiritual life and to experience the spiritual and the eternal life. And he was trying to explain this reality to Nicodemus, this requirement to have a spiritual birth. Well, now Jesus begins to want to proceed to explain how that actually comes to pass, how that happens. How does one begin a spiritual life? How does one experience being born spiritually to start out a spiritual life? Well, the last verse we looked at in our study last week in verse 15, Jesus made that statement. Look at it there in verse 15. He said, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have this eternal quality of life. Well, that's almost a thesis statement now, verse 15. Whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life that Jesus now expounds upon as their conversation continues. Look with me, verse 16, probably one of the most familiar verses to most people on this planet that Jesus declared, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus went on to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, if we look at verse 16 and 17 collectively here in just 48 words, that's what's there in verse 16 and 17, 48 words. Jesus shares this great summary, really, of the entirety of the message, quite frankly, of the entire Bible. This is the entire Bible encapsulated, if you would, in less than 50 words as Jesus makes this statement that God, our Creator, who loves us all tremendously and has always wanted to have a close relationship with us, but yet, unfortunately, because of our sin against God, We have now been separated from God relationally. And if our sin is not forgiven at some point before we die, we can be separated from God eternally in damnation and hell and the lake of fire. But yet God in his tremendous love for us has taken the initiative for us to provide a way or a plan of the forgiveness of our sins and that we might be reconciled back into this original relationship with God that he intended for all of humanity and that we might ultimately be able to spend eternity with him in heaven. And Jesus, the son of God, is describing that now in his words here. 
That's what's being given to us in verses 16 and 17. So let's begin to sort of dissect this a little bit and just meditate upon this incredible summary statement of Jesus of God's plan of salvation for all of humanity. Notice it begins with, again, if you're sort of a a note taker and you want to glean some of these things, it sort of begins with the origin or the motive, if you would, of God's plan of salvation through Jesus. What was the origin of God's salvation? What was the, the motive of why God created a plan of salvation through Jesus? Well, look at verse 16 there. It says, for God so loved the world. God, our creator, so loved this world that he made a plan of salvation. It was the incredible and immense love of God that guided him that was the primary motivator in his heart to provide a plan of salvation for us. That was what motivated God to provide salvation for humanity. The Bible teaches us that God is love. First John declares that. The same writer who wrote this gospel is also the one in First John who wrote God is love. Now take notice of that. It does not say God is loving. Now that's true as well. But the Bible doesn't just say God is loving. The Bible says God himself is love. That is, he is all of what true, perfect, pure love really is. He is the source and the origin of what genuine, real love is. Perfect, unconditional love. That means a love that does not need to be earned. A love that does not need, in a sense, to have the right conditions in order to keep on loving. It is a perfect, pure, unconditional love in its existence that is not tainted by any reasons or purposes or self-serving needs. And unlike any human love that we've ever experienced on this earth, this is the thing with the love of God that makes it so marvelous, but at the same time, almost somewhat challenging because it's a foreign kind of love. It's a love that is so unusual and foreign For us as human beings who as well express forms of love to each other on this earth, it is so unlike natural human love that it's almost somewhat, let's be honest, kind of hard to understand. It's almost sort of hard to accept even for a lot of us because it's so unusual. That's why John says in 1 John 3, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we could be called children of God. The, 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 The word literally there is behold what foreign or Out of this world, like from another planet, another universe, this love is that God has for us. It's not dependent upon, and here's the difference from human love, God's love is not dependent upon finding something attractive in you. Because he wouldn't. I hate to break your bubble this morning. It's not in finding something so admirable in you. Okay, well, I'm not very attractive, but I'm... There's some pretty admirable qualities in my life for sure. Listen, God's love has nothing to do with needing to find something attractive in you, something admirable in me. Now, human love's like that. We fall in love with romantically somebody because we're attracted to them or we find admirable qualities in them. That's not how God's love works. God does not need to find any of that. It's not determined by or altered by our condition. It's not altered by your performance. It does not matter who you are, despite what you have done at any point in your life or what you've been through, or even if you love God. He automatically loves you because it's an unconditional love of choice. He chooses to love you. He chooses to love all of humanity because God himself has a loving nature. God is loving. He's compassionate. 
He's caring and He's kind. And He's a God that's merciful and gracious and generous and good. And therefore, that is what He feels towards His creation and towards humanity, the crown of His creation, human beings. And despite our relation to Him, He loves us. So this morning, if you're rightly related to God, He loves you. This morning, if you hate God, He loves you just as much as the person who loves Him. This morning, if you are here and your response towards God is you want to follow Him and please Him and do anything you can to make Him happy and to love Him back in return, God loves you. And this morning, if you're here and if you have the hardest, coldest, most rebellious heart against God and you want nothing to do with Him, you don't even want to believe in Him, listen, that's fine. But you can't stop God from loving you. God still loves you in that condition. And when you're in that condition, God still loves you. And listen, for those of us who may love him at this point in our lives, he doesn't love you more. You can't make him love you more because of how loving you are towards him. God's love is this pure, unconditional love that nothing has or nothing can ever alter or change that kind of love. That's why Romans 8 says that to us where it says nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God. How wonderful is that? To have that kind of a love, that foreign love, and it takes getting used to, doesn't it? Even after you come to experience the love of God, it takes, it's awkward adjusting to it because it's so unlike human love that we often exchange between one another. What Jesus is telling us here, it's because of this love, this incredible love that God has for humanity, that that's the reason why, that is the reason why, that he provided a plan of salvation for us from our sin. It was not that God felt bad or you know, obligated to sort of uh, bail out human beings so God kind of reluctantly came up with a damage control plan. I mean, I'm God and it, everything did fall apart down there on the earth and they really botched it. So let me come up with a damage control plan. Listen, nothing could be further from the truth. The reality is it's because God loves people. It was the love of God, the pure love of God that caused him, if you would, to simply not be able to see us suffer in our sin and ultimately what sin would do for us. It was his love that wants the best for us, that did not want us to be separated from him now or eternally, that caused God to initiate a plan of salvation, to pursue and provide a plan of salvation. I just even love how Jesus uses the terminology that he did there, verse 16, for God, I have it underlined, so loved. He could have just said, for God loved the world, but he said, for God so loved the world. Again, that word so there is to seek to emphasize great extent or the depth of his love. For example, we say things like, man, that place is so far away. And we know what we mean by it. It's so far away. Again, I, I have three daughters at this point and stage of life, high school and college age, and I've had to come to terms with this. Sometimes they see a young man and they go, he is so cute. <laughs> It makes me want to quench the spirit when they do that and start casting out demons and so forth. But, but I understand what that means. Oh, it, some people are cute, but then some are like, oh, he is so good looking. You know? And this is the idea here. You know, God so loves the world. He so loves it. He so loves it that that is the degree of that love that made him do what he did. You know, this morning... 
you might be wise, I've done it before, <clears throat> to look at verse 16 and to just remove, if you would, mentally the word world and put the word you in there for yourself instead. To read that and to realize, for God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, this morning, today, can I encourage you to ignore any negative feelings that you have about yourself or thoughts or your human reasoning about why you perceive God feels the way he feels about you negatively in some way or couldn't love you or shouldn't love you or doesn't love you? Can I encourage you to just ignore that? Because it's a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell. And may you set aside all the distorted ideas that I apologize may even be in your mind that has been fractured because of the way that someone who supposedly loved you loved you wrongly in a false form of love. Maybe in a, a love that was not the proper kind of love and maybe a parent didn't love you the way a parent, a healthy parent should have loved you or there was some abusive or hurtful or harmful thing that happened in a relationship and that fractures our reasoning towards what love's really like. Listen, I apologize for that, but don't carry that over and let that be a stumbling block to understanding God's love for you because of how you were mistreated by someone who supposedly loved you. May you believe, believe, may you believe the words of Jesus regarding how much God loves you. It's not reasonable. I understand. It's not logical. It's supernatural. But yet the reality is it is true and it's real and God wants us to know it. God wants you to accept and to experience that love for you. Not that it would be just a fact intellectually, but he wants you to, to ex have it experientially. To open your heart to God as a person. To not be afraid to let down your guard if you would internally and to receive the great love of God that he has for you. Romans chapter 5 says the love of God can be poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And for some of you, because of your own ideas or what's happened to you, in some ways you continue to live somewhat fractured because you can't even muster up the courage to open your own heart to God and to just let Him love you and to receive His love for you. I tell you, it is the most healing, transforming thing that could ever happen. Today, what a great occasion to personally ask God in the quietness of your own heart, Lord, open my heart and pour your love into my heart. Pour your love into my heart that I might know the extent of it of what you have for me. Well, going on, look also what God did for us to clearly prove the extent of his love. God actually proved it to us. He doesn't just say he loves us. He shows the extent of his love. Second, by saying there that he gave his only begotten son. Take notice. God did not hold back the most precious, important thing that he had. It says here, the proof of his love is that he gave his only son. Imagine, if you're a parent here this morning, how hard that would be for a perfect parent who loves their children is a good parent and their children are the most important thing in the world for them. Imagine trying to sacrifice your child. I have three children. I can't imagine sacrificing one of my children and I have two replacements. God had one, his only son, his only son. 
And he sacrificed his only son. What degree of love must God have for you, must God have for the world, in order to deny himself as a father and give Jesus? I love Romans chapter 8 where it says that God did not spare his only son. He didn't spare. He could have said, look, I mean, I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll make a cosmic miracle. But there is one thing that is so... I am... At a certain point, you got to draw a line. I am not giving my son for them. But God didn't spare his own son. He didn't hold back. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says this, In this the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or payment for our sins. I want you to notice something this morning. Whenever the Bible seeks to prove the love of God, Whenever the Bible wants to validate God's love for us, it always points to one subject, God's willingness to give up his own son, Jesus Christ, and to let him die upon the cross for our sins as a substitute for the penalty that we deserved. Whenever the Bible seeks to speak of God's love or point to God's love, it does not talk about anything else. It always makes statements like that. In this, the love of God was manifested or revealed towards us. God sent his son. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Every time God in his word seeks to prove and validate his love, the focal point is always, this is how you'll know that God loves you. This is how anyone can clearly see the reality and the extent of God's love. And keep in mind, that this father was willing to give up his own child to suffer and die on our behalf. And can I go a step further to say this, not to mention it was for an ungrateful, evil, wicked people who hated God, who was spitting in the face of God. Romans 5.8 again says, God demonstrates his love towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for you. God did this, again, I can't imagine giving one of my children for the most important, special, precious person in the world, let alone for some scumbag that's been mean and cruel and and done something harmful and hurtful to me that I would say, yes, okay, I'll give you my child. I mean, that's just, it's unfathomable. But that's the love of God. And I say that this morning because, listen, please, 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 I beseech you, never try and measure and determine God's love in your life by your circumstances or by your life's experience. And this is what the human mind often does. And I believe it is one of the very successful tactics of the devil to get people to try and measure God's love for them by their experiences in life. How many times? Well, I mean, if God loves me, why is this going on? If God loves me, why did this happen? If God loved me, how come I experience this? If God loves me, why won't this happen? Why can't I get a job? Why can't I get a boyfriend? Why can't I get a girlfriend? Where's my wife? And, and, and we determine God's love by experiential things. Listen, I don't have the answer to all of life's questions. This is a fallen world. But I tell you, it will greatly confuse you as a human being if you always try and determine God's love for you off of life experiences or circumstances. That is a dangerous thing. The truth of God's love and the extent he underwent to show and prove it is look at the cross. Look that God gave his son and demonstrated the extent of his love to you and I as an undeserving people and that he proved his love once for all by sending Jesus and letting him suffer on our behalf because God says if you keep looking at that, even when life makes you want to question 
the love of God for you, when you look at that, you'll say, but I know God loves me. I don't understand why this is going on, but I, I see that. I know God has got to love me because there's no way God would have done that if he did not love me. And so therefore, I will not allow circumstances or my perspective to make my re- God loves me because that shows me that God loves me. I love that great song says, how deep the father's love for us, how vast beyond our measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. What a great reminder. Well, look how God specifically gave and offered his son. He tells us specifically how he did it there. In the 17th verse, it says that he sent his only son into the world. God sent his son. God gave his son. Well, how did he give him? Verse 17 answers the question for us. He sent his son into the world. That describes the incredibly wise plan of God and what Jesus came to accomplish. The world was fallen in sin. The world was under the curse of sin. The wicked one was ruling over humanity. And it took Jesus being sent by the Father in heaven to come to this earth and to take the body of a man himself, being fully God, and at the same time becoming man, two natures, divine and human, so that he could be in touch with divinity and reach out and be able to save and reconcile humanity back to divinity. So Jesus comes, he's sent by the Father, he lives the sinless life, a life free of sin and failure that you and I could never accomplish as human beings. He lives the perfect life to satisfy the necessary requirement of a holy God of his Father in heaven. And then after living the perfect sinless life, he steps into our place in the guilty seat, in the electric chair. And he takes our life sentence. He takes the punishment we deserve and dies on our place. He becomes sin and he gives to us the righteousness of God. He says here, I earned the righteousness of God through a sinless life. You take my righteousness so that you can be forgiven and go to heaven and see my father. And I'll take the death and the punishment that you deserve for your sin. And this incredible plan of God where God sends Jesus to come and to do what we could not do for ourselves to make a way to have access into heaven. Look also here in verse 17, we see God's intention or or God's purpose, if you would, God's purpose with Jesus. He says, first of all, in the 17th verse, that God did not send his son, he did not send him to condemn the world. That is, God didn't send Jesus to bring punishment or judgment for sin, though it was justly deserved. And Jesus could have come the first time and brought condemnation and judgment. The heart of God in sending Jesus was not for that. It was to free people from sin, which tells us this about our God, that God does not find pleasure or enjoyment or any form of satisfaction in punishing or judging people that he greatly loves. Now, that being said, In the entirety of truth, God is a good and a righteous and a just God. And he must at some point judge, however. He must at some point punish, if you would, if needed ultimately due to man's rebellion. And he wouldn't be a good God and a good judge if he didn't do that. But yet even when God must come to the place where he must judge or punish, it's done with a heavy heart. It's never his preference. God didn't send Jesus to condemn the world. It's never God's preference. It's with reluctance that a God who is slow to anger and abounding in mercy and great in love and compassion, it's with great heavy heart and reluctance when he does judges and when he must judge. And that's why he refrained from judging the world when Jesus came. Jesus wasn't sent to go condemn the world. 
It tells us here it was the exact opposite. Jesus came to remove and alleviate the need for that. In fact, when you look at the life of Jesus, and we'll see it here in John's Gospel, and you read Matthew and Mark and Luke, you begin to take notice Jesus' life and how he lived it and related to people related that he did not come to condemn. When you look at Jesus, so unlike the religious leaders in that day who were very harsh with sinful people, Jesus was very compassionate with sinners. Jesus was merciful. He was not condemning in how he treated people who were stuck in patterns of sin. He would often reach out to those most deeply entrenched in sin. Especially, a lot of times, it was those who the world would cast aside, the tax collectors and prostitutes and drunks. Jesus would go and show incredible compassion to them. And he wouldn't seek to condemn them. He wanted to change them. He wanted to transform them. But he wasn't condemning in how he related to people. In fact, he was most stern, usually with the self-righteous and those who thought that they had it all together and weren't like those people over there. That's who Jesus was often most stern with. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And today, please know, Jesus is not looking to condemn you as a person. Jesus doesn't want to punish you as a person. Instead, Jesus simply wants to change you. He wants to compassionately draw you out of what you're in and help change you into what God intends for you to be. And as we as Christians seek to represent Jesus, let us remember these words of Jesus here as we're his representatives and his light in the world today. God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world. So be careful as a Christian. Yes, I want to share the full truth of the gospel with people. But I don't want to come across somebody that the first thing I'm looking to do is to whip out my you know, John Wayne gospel and loader guns and to condemn somebody and make them feel horrible. Listen, when you hang out with somebody or talk to somebody that's not saved, the reason they act like that is because they're not saved. And they should relate to them, well, look, not being, look, I understand, I was like that at one time. And they simply don't have the light and the illumination. And so we should be compassionate and caring with those even who are in lives of sin or who maybe have failed greatly rather than being condemning and harsh. We see God's true intention was not to condemn, but look how it goes on. It says, but, verse 17, that the world through him, through Jesus, might be saved. Again, the word saved means to rescue or deliver from danger, harm, or destruction. Now, the very fact that Jesus uses that language and terminology shows that we need to be rescued, that we need to be spared, we need to be set free or delivered, we all need to be saved from something. And that's important to understand. We need to be saved from something. The very term saved indicates that we need to be saved from sin and its consequences. And the Bible tells us that there is no difference for we have all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The one thing every human being on this planet shares in common is we have all failed. In thought, in word, and deed, there is no perfect person or there never would have been a need for Jesus Christ to have come and to have done what he did for us. We all have failed. We've all fallen short of the standard. And Jesus said, whoever sins becomes a slave of sin, which means that as we begin a life of sin from birth onward, sin then just begins to take power over our life and we become enslaved to it. The shackles are invisible. People don't walk around and say, hey, can you tell I'm a slave to sin? Can you? People don't live that way. They're oblivious to the fact that they live in a life of bondage, that they don't have true liberality and freedom. In fact, it's funny, sometimes you'll talk to somebody who's not saved. And like, well, I, just, I don't know if that thing's for me. I mean, it seems like a lot of you know, bondage, that Christian stuff. 
when the reality is, dude, you're the I'm free. I don't have to get drunk anymore. I don't have to do drugs. I don't have to be promiscuous or, or selfish or angry, though I am sometimes, but I don't have to be. I don't have to live like that anymore. I'm free to live differently now. I, I don't have to have a lack of peace. and I can have joy and peace internally. There's, there's this liberation when you come to Christ. And Jesus says, we live as slaves of sin, which means we need someone to rescue us, number one, from the penalty of our sin and its eternal consequences, the condemnation of eternal judgment for sin, but we also need someone to rescue us from the power of sin. And this is the problem, is Jesus has come to save us from this. This is why he came, because we need to be delivered from that. Our sin has brought sickness and death into humanity, and worse, it has brought eternal judgment upon humanity. And so therefore, in that condition, we need to be spared from that, from the wrath of God and eternal punishment. And those who have not had their sin forgiven, who have not had their sin removed before they die, then they face the condemnation of having to answer to God for their own sin. And the Bible says it's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. This is why we need, the Bible says, to be saved because we will give account to our God and to our creator for our lives. And before we do that, we need someone to liberate us from the power of sin dominating us in this life and the penalty of sin that we have, in a sense, resting upon us as our sentence that one day will be carried out upon us eternally when we die and stand before our Creator. It's, again, if you sort of think of it, it's like the person who's, you know, the old movie, you know, tied down to the railroad tracks and they got the train barreling down on them. That person can't set themselves free. When you see the person tied down to the railroad tracks and the train of judgment is bearing down upon them, they need a savior. They need somebody to come in and to set them free and to spare them from that condition and from what is coming upon them in that condition. Same is true spiritually. The Bible teaches that we are under the judgment of the wrath of God because we are all sinners and we can't spare ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We're powerless. That's why God sent Jesus into the world to save fallen sinners. That's why Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through me, he says, might be saved. Matthew 1 tells us when the angel was speaking to Joseph, he said, Mary will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Acts chapter 4 says it this way, that salvation is found in no other for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Again, the Bible says we must be saved and it must come through Jesus. He's the only one who is the Savior. And let me say this this morning. Even as someone drowning, okay, let's say we have a, a riptide in the ocean out here and someone is drowning, even as somebody that is drowning doesn't realize they're drowning or they don't even want to admit that they're drowning, it does not change the fact that they're drowning. See, you may not realize you're drowning. You may not want to admit that you need to be saved, but the need doesn't go away. All that does is indicate that perhaps you're deceived and you don't realize you need to be saved. Or perhaps you're just too prideful, as we all can be, to admit 
that you need to be saved and to be open to letting someone save you. And the same is true spiritually. There are people in this world, you may be here this morning, who maybe they don't realize that they're perishing and they're going to hell. They don't realize that they need to be saved. That doesn't mean that they don't need to be saved still. It just means either they're deceived about that reality or it means perhaps that they do understand the reality, but they're still wrestling with the pride and arrogancy of their own human nature that won't admit that they need to be saved and that they need Jesus to save them in their lives. So God sent Jesus into the world that we might be saved through him. Again, Jesus, not a church, not a pastor, not a priest, not a religious system, no practices of rituals, None of those things can save us. Jesus, the Savior, is the one who died on the cross for our sins. So Jesus is the only one who can save us. That's why Jesus said in John 10, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. My question to you this morning as a breathing audience in front of me is this. Have you come to the reality for yourself of that realization and done something about it? Have you ever come to the place where you realize that you need to be saved? That you need to be saved? Particularly if you're younger this morning because you kind of feel like, well, I mean, gosh, I, mean, I haven't done that much wrong. Listen, you've done something wrong. And that's all it takes. Imagine trying to say that to, to, say that to you know, a, a police officer. I haven't broken that many laws. Just one officer. One broken law makes you a lawbreaker. So whether somebody's broken a thousand laws or broken one law, we're all lawbreakers. And so we all need to be saved. And this morning, if you have not come to that reality, may God bring that reality home to your heart and may you respond to it if you never have. Because here what God has made freely available to everyone, Jesus says there that whoever believes in him, look again at the 16th verse, shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus has made through his life, death, and resurrection everything available. Salvation is made fully available through Jesus Christ and what he's done if we receive it. And Jesus says there's cl two clear or distinct destinies. We can perish spiritually or we can have everlasting life. To perish speaks of suffering utter eternal ruin. It speaks of hell. The lake of fire, it speaks of a place of outer darkness, the Bible describes, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the fire is not quenched, and where there is torment forever and ever, unending, unceasing pain eternally of torment continuously. Or the other option is to experience everlasting eternal life, that is life eternally with God in heaven's glory, in the presence of God. All the glory and the bliss and the beauty where there's no more pain or sorrow or suffering or sickness where there's total joy and peace by being in the presence of God. And that opportunity to escape hell and have access into heaven, that all is something that is available to whoever believes. Whoever. Anyone and everyone, but you must make your eternal reservation in this life by deciding what you do with Jesus. And perishing in hell is what we're all already headed for initially. And only Jesus can give us the opportunity to be spared and brought to heaven. Look at the 18th verse. He says, he who believes in him, referring to Jesus himself, is not condemned. 
But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So Jesus, in this 18th verse, pay attention here, clearly indicates and emphasizes there is one. One singular determining factor of whether a person is saved and goes to heaven or whether they are condemned eternally and goes to hell. Only one thing will assure that if you go to heaven or you end up in hell is whether or not you have exercised personal belief in Jesus Christ. Personal faith and trust in Him to save you. It is an exclusive factor of spiritual and eternal life our choice to believe or not believe in Jesus. Do you see what he says there? He says, he who believes is not condemned. He who believes is not condemned. It's said back in verse 16, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible is so clear we are saved and spared from judgment that our sin deserves by faith, by believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. Faith is what God honors to grant salvation from sin. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it this way. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Again, the Bible is so clear. We are not saved by somehow saving ourselves through religious works. Oh, I'm weighing out my good deeds and my bad deeds. I'm trying to be a good this and, and I go to all the services and I do all the practices and which goes, great, great. That shows you're a very devoted person. You're a devoted failure. <laughs> because we're all failures. And the Bible says this, if righteousness could be attained through the law, Christ died in vain. And I have a very, very hard time and I hope you would too to think about a loving, perfect, good God who's a father sending his only son into this world and letting humanity spit on him and mock him and insult him and beat him and pin him to a cross and let his life be poured out through the blood that he shed and that was all in vain because I can do enough good things to make myself right with God. Hey, I'm a deal maker. You know, I'm, I work deals with everybody. You'll never work a deal with God. You can't do that. God's not a partial God. You may be able to work deals with everybody else on this planet, but God says, there's a deal. It's my deal. I've made the way, I've given my son, and you must choose what you're going to do. You can't work for it. This is one of the greatest deceptions, again, the devil uses among humanity. I believe religion is one of the greatest opiates that desensitizes people true need spiritually. Is they're thinking, well, I'm, I'm a good this, I'm a good that, I'm so fit. Listen, it's not by works. It's by faith in the finished work of Jesus. And that is, it's the person of Jesus. Because you see what he says there? He says, we must believe in him, whoever believes in him. It's putting personal trust in Christ because he was the Savior who made salvation possible. Therefore, we have to recognize we can't save ourselves. We can't make ourselves right with God somehow. It's wonderful that we may do some good works or pray prayers or read Bibles or help old ladies across the street. That's wonderful. But we can't make ourselves right with God. Only Jesus can make us right with God and therefore our trust must be in him and his finished work for us. He also says in our verse here, he who does not believe is condemned already. 
Notice that, condemned already. We are already all under the judgment and condemnation of sin. Currently, the Bible says we're by nature children of wrath because of our sin against God. And what we need then is to realize I'm already condemned. I need to be spared from the coming condemnation upon me. I need to be saved from that. Jesus alone is the Savior and the one who can spare me if I believe in him. And therefore, believing my condition and believing what Jesus accomplished, I then respond in believing faith sincerely. And I call upon the name of the Lord. And I say, Lord, I need you to save me. I want to be forgiven of my sin, God. I want to know that I'm going to heaven and that I'm forgiven and only what your son did is sufficient. So Jesus, you alone can save me. Jesus saved me. When we call upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says we're saved from wrath through him. Jesus is emphasizing that repeatedly in the 18th verse, almost redundantly. He says, because he who has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God, that's the one that's condemned. Again, John chapter three is going to say, who believes in the son has everlasting life. And he's going to say, he who does not believe in the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. Hey, this morning, listen, the determining factor, belief, faith. You must exercise that faith towards Jesus. Now, he says in the 19th verse here, and this is the condemnation. In other words, Jesus is going to say here, those who stay in a place of condemnation, of eternal judgment resting upon them, he's going to say here, this is why he's going to explain this is why people reject God's free offer. Some people do reject them. He says this is why they stay in a place of condemnation or judgment upon themselves eternally. He says light has come into the world but men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. So Jesus shows here, look at it, that the problem is not intellectual. It's not really understanding because a child can understand these things. The problem is moral and spiritual. Jesus came as the light into the world to light the world to the understanding of how to be saved. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. Jesus says the problem is people love and enjoy living in their darkness morally and they don't want to come to the light. Jesus is saying here the reason... People remain in a condition of eternal judgment upon themselves is because of their lifestyle of sinful and evil deeds and they simply don't want to give up the pleasure of sin. They don't want to let go of the life that they have and they may give, listen, they may give a multitude of other excuses and reasons why and arguments against and justifications but Jesus who knows all men declares this is the bottom line. The bottom line, despite what people say, is the problem. People just love darkness more. They love the darkness that they can still have as they live in that life. And he indicates in verse 20 there, everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Jesus is saying they don't want to have to face accountability or a sense of shame or guilt over their evil or wrong practices. They don't want to have to answer for what's wrong in their life. And they're not ready to do that yet. They don't want to give account for their sin. They don't want the light of Jesus to shine upon areas of their life that are sin. They want to keep it secret still. They want to keep it unexposed. And they know that if they come to Jesus, the displeasure of what they do in their life is going to be clearly seen for what it is because the light of God will shine upon them. And so not wanting that, 
They do not come to Jesus because they don't want their sin exposed and because they don't want to face the sense of God's approval or the need to repent of anything. Whether it's just being in charge of their own life or some sinful, evil, secret thing they have going on in their life. So they do not come to Jesus and Jesus reveals that despite all the excuses and rationalizations that people put up as a smokescreen, Jesus says the reality is this, because I know the human heart. He says the reason people don't come to me to be saved is the same reason why somebody who robs banks can't find a police officer. Wait for it. There you go. Thanks, Rick. <laughs> why? Because they want to keep robbing banks. They want to keep robbing banks and they don't want to stop doing what's wrong and they don't want to face their guilt. And Jesus says this is the singular reason that people re refrain from coming to him. Verse 21, he says, But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So he concludes the conversation with Nicodemus indicating, I think in the 21st verse, what it looks like when a person has embraced him, the exact opposite. When Jesus is embraced for salvation, a person is born again, they begin to do and practice the truth. They depart from error. They bring their life into the light of God and they want to do what is true about what God says is true in moral and spiritual things. They want to admit the truth about themselves. They want to accept the truth of God. They come to Jesus' light because they want their deeds clearly seen. When a person comes to Jesus Christ, they're no longer trying to hide and cover up anymore. They come to Jesus, look, I, I want to confess my, my failures openly. I want to humbly admit who I am before God and, and expose what's going on and where I failed in my life. I want to admit who I am and I want to come out of the dark. I don't want to live in the dark anymore. I want to walk in God's light and, and I want to have a new desire and there's a changed way of living and people are no longer ashamed to openly reveal, yes, I humbly know who I am now and I want to live differently and I want my deeds to be done and everybody to know that the way I'm now living is in a relationship with God. And everything that I'm doing, my deeds, they're done in the power of God and done in God because I don't live in the dark anymore. I live now for the King of Light. And I want my life to be open and in the light of the Lord. Today, let me ask you very simply, are you saved or are you condemned? It's a very simplistic thing. If you're the, here this morning and you're saved by Jesus, that should translate, ladies and gentlemen, into us being the most grateful of appreciative people to God it should cause us to be a people that say God any way I can serve you and any way I can worship you listen crazy people do cuckoo machine stuff in football stadiums for a team and Christians go oh it's kind of weird just raising hand stuff you know we're all subdued and we don't want to worship God because we don't look cool the guy three rows down from us might think I'm not macho so I love you, Jesus. Love, love you. Sing you, Jesus. Listen, you're saved, man. You're saved from hell. That's a good reason to be pretty grateful to God. And it's a good reason that if you're a Christian, that if you've gone back to the dark, you need to get out of the dark and get back into the light. And not be living in the dark if you're a Christian. You're called to live in the light. If you're doing secret stuff in the dark, you need to repent this morning. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you're not yet saved, listen, today's your day. He loves you and he's reaching out to you. 
And it's an opportunity for you to believe upon what we're talking about and you can experience a change of eternal destiny. Let's stand together. Let's pray.